On this holiday episode of the Driving Improvement Podcast, my guest is Tempe Warmack, an accomplished guitarist, recording engineer, and veteran of the U.S. Army. Over the years, Tempe has created a highly successful teaching business, helping people of all ages and ability levels find their love of music through the guitar. From blues to jazz to southern rock, Tempe has played it all and seen it all and has the stories to match. On this episode, we discuss what influences us to pursue our passion, why shortcuts to mastery just don't exist, and how playing the guitar led to jumping out of an airplane. All that, plus some great discussion on the traits the best musicians have and what makes them great, and what you can do to be the best version of yourself in whatever passion you choose to pursue. It's a rockin' edition of the Driving Improvement Podcast, right now. All right, well, welcome into the Driving Improvement Podcast, everyone, and I'm super excited to have my guitar teacher, uh, God help him, uh, Tempe Warmack on with me. Tempe, great to have you on, man. Good to see you. Hey, good to see you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's uh, we got a little, uh, Tempe and I usually are seeing each other on uh, Zoom calls here, so we're doing a little bit of reversal here. Uh, with me uh, running the uh, running the Zoom today, uh, we got a little blood little little blood pumping for uh, everyone uh, prior to recording this with a little bit of audio issues, but we got it worked out. Uh, so, Tempe, first question, very important question: Am I your most difficult student, or no comment? <laughs> um, <laughs> most difficult student? No, absolutely not, absolutely not. I think that the key to it all is keeping a good attitude and and. Uh, driving forward and you do both of those things that's good well i appreciate it i never expected you to actually uh answer that one honestly but it's all good so <laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh just background man like setting the table for everybody a little bit so was music always a thing in your house yeah so my dad played guitar uh, and sang he didn't do any gigging or anything but it was the kind of thing he did around the house and he would jam with friends and um and uh when we would have family gatherings, um, I had an uncle on his side that also played. And on my mother's side, my great, let me think about this, my great uncle played guitar. So he was like a World War II vet and he played guitar and sang and he actually cut a record back in the 60s, just like mm. as a project, you know, he was, it was a very um, important uh, hobby for him. It was, uh, so on both sides of the family, I had musicians around. Yes. And then, yeah, growing up, I had friends that played as well. Was it always, was it always guitar or was there anything else? Um, it mostly, it was mostly guitar. I would say, um, I, I got a bass as my first instrument, uh, in high school, uh, sorry, I guess middle school. I remember when they, they start recruiting you for the band, and they, they do a demonstration of all the different instruments. And I saw the trombone. And the only reason I wanted to play trombone was because I wanted to do that. I just thought that was the coolest <laughs> thing, which is just like an annoying noisemaker, really, when you look at it that way. That's all I wanted to do. So I played trombone for about a year. But <laughs> mm. I frustrated my teacher, I'm sure, because all I did was basically that. <laughs> so you, um, as you make your way through, um, talk a little bit about you know, school and education and, and that side with you with, with getting a formal education, if you will, in guitar besides some of the you know stuff you learned from dad at home. So, um, sure. So I grew up, um, in, in the eighties in kind of a rural area. So you'd have to be kind of lucky to have somebody around that played music. And I did have that, um, friends of mine, that I was, I was already friends with since, you know, a very young age, one by one started playing instrument, mostly guitar. So instead of, you know, it, we kind of all went through our phases where we were into like, uh, you know, like break dancing, and then we were kind of into like ninjas <laughs> and stuff. And then one, and then we kind of went into guitar stuff all together. Um, and there was an older kid actually that had kind of an influence on me. He's very similar to that. Um, the Stranger Things, the kid Eddie, who's supposed to be like Eddie Van Halen, um, 
he was a couple of years older than me and he had long hair and he listened to Metallica and Iron Maiden. And he was, he, he had this sort of standoffish attitude. Like you'd think he's a bit of a tough guy maybe, but we got to talking about guitar stuff and he gave me a lot of great advice. And it's like one thing led to another. He said, you should take some music theory classes in, in, um, in school here. It's the only thing you can do that's music related. And if you're not in the band, like as a, you know, a horn player or something. So I did that. I took music theory and uh, it really like opened my eyes to the sort of the science or the grammar of music. And at the end of that semester or at the end of that year, there was a poster on the wall for this summer guitar camp in Albany, New York. And I signed up for it. So I went out there and I did two weeks at this place and it just like blew my mind. They had all, people from all over the country there. They had people teaching there and everyone was talking about Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And after my mom came to pick me up, we actually were going to visit family near Boston. So I went up to the campus and got a catalog and I went back to uh, high school going into my sophomore, sorry, going into my junior year, I guess, sophomore year. Um, and just decided that's what I was going to do. So I just worked my butt off, um, to try to fill that, you know, fill that application out as good as, as full as I could. And I started taking private lessons, both in classical and jazz guitar, continued with the music theory stuff in, in high school. And, uh, it's kind of amazing how that one little tip from that guy just kind of led to this whole other thing. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Berkeley, uh, for, I went there for a year and then I took a year off and came back and worked and you know made up some made some money to go back went back for two more years and then got a gig in the army and uh eventually made my way into the band in the in the uh in the army on active yeah. duty so you so you go into the army and you know um i was watching some of the interview stuff that that, that was on your website too and everything and we've we've talked about it a little bit but you go into the army and you know you're in the band and everything but you end up jumping out of planes. How exactly does yeah. that work? <laughs> That's crazy. So yeah, the uh, getting into the army was getting into the army band was kind of a crazy, weird uh, experience for me. Um, but once I was in, uh, so uh, you go to the typical route is to go through. Everyone would go through basic training, and then from after your basic training, you go to uh, advanced individual training or AIT. So. If you're going to learn how to drive a truck, you go to truck driver school. If you're going to learn how to, you know, be in the infantry, you go to infantry school. Well, there's a school in music. So, and a lot of people don't know this, but actually the, the military is the largest employer of musicians in the country. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, the, even though I was in the army, uh, the army folks, the Marine Corps and the Navy all go to the Navy base down in Virginia, the Naval, that's the Naval School of Music. I think they call it Armed Forces School of Music. So you go through that for about six months and, and then you are sent to a band. So at the time there, there actually were not very many guitar players in the band. There's only in, in the system, there's only about one guitar player per band in overall. So there's not very many and they weren't quite sure where I was going to go, but they said, if you, if you volunteer, they need a guitar player at Fort Bragg and the band at Fort Bragg, this isn't true anymore, but at the time they were, it was the 82nd airborne band and you were required to go to jump school. So I would have to go to uh, jump school at Fort Benning and, and then make my way to the band because the band was on jump status, meaning everybody in the, in the division jumps all the units. They don't do that anymore, but at the time they did. So it didn't matter if you were a truck driver or infantry or in the band or a cook you jumped. So I was feeling really, you know, patriotic. I felt very lucky uh, and blessed to have that gig. So I said, all right, that sounds like it would absolutely scare the hell out of me. Uh, I, I was actually not a, a thrill seeker at all, but I said, this sounds scary. And I, I feel like that I would be serving my country doing something that I'm, I'm glad that, and, 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 uh, uh, fortunate to have this gig, but also this is a thing that genuinely scares me. I feel yeah. like I should do that. It's sort of a sacrifice, I guess. And so, and to push myself, I felt like I wouldn't want to pass on the opportunity of going through jump school. Um, I, so I, I did it to kind of push myself. So I went to jump school for three weeks at Fort Benning, just like, you know, I'm right next to guys going through ranger school and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm a, 
guitar player. Um, <laughs> so yeah, then, so then I went to the band and uh, the whole time I was there, like I say, we were on jump status and we did a lot of just being in the band. We did some crazy jumps. We would um, not just do training jumps like with the, which we did a lot of at Fort Bragg, you know, at night with the infantry guys but we would also do things like uh we there was a time we did a a jump down in florida uh for a before a parade that we did like the next day um we would i jumped into buffalo once we did a uh we did a jump and um oh, we almost i was on a plane t- i take that back we were supposed to jump but the winds were too high so they actually uh we just we didn't do that that kind of exit out of the aircraft in the in flight but um uh, we did, you know, we, we did all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and it was a, it was a heck of an experience. I, I would never think I would have done that under, you know, any other, in other, any other situation, but I'm really glad that I did. I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about, you know, working with other people and stuff like that. And what to really be, you know, it, it, when you learn how to sort of conquer that fear or deal with that fear of jumping out of an airplane, especially in a military setting where it's at night and there's lots of people on the aircraft and it's, you know, it's cold and sometimes even rainy and you're jumping into the dark and you're really not very high up off the ground. That's, you're not there for a thrill seeking. You're there to, that's how they go to war. So it's, you know, it's no joke. Um, I'm glad I did it though. I learned a lot about myself. So in that, um, and that's an interesting, interesting experience that we may we may play on a little bit here too. But you also, as a part of your musical side of the army, you you played all over the world. What were some of the best places that you played, and and what was your takeaway just from being around maybe other cultures and and their viewpoint on music and and maybe how it changed from ours? So um, I played all over the U.S. I did. Uh, we did go to Haiti, although we I did some. Uh, we didn't perform for, we performed for the, uh, for the, the uh, military guys down there. Um, when I was over in Europe, we played all over the place. And um, I think it's important to understand in that setting, what American music kind of means for that. Like at the end, at the end of world war two, as we were, as the U S was pushing in to Europe, the uh, armed forces network was actually broadcasting swing music to this to the gis to the soldiers but of course the locals picked it up and so that american music like john philip sousa and a lot of the swing music that was happening at the time for the french and the belgians and a lot of the germans it meant freedom and it still does so it was something special when you went to uh anywhere and as an american we played you know we would play those those uh, that type of music. So the music, our music, the John Philip Sousa and the swing music, and it was it meant something to those folks because this was an American unit playing American music, and it reminded them, even the newer generations coming up, of of what of what happened. And right. I would say, you know, gosh, there were so many cool places that we played as a as a civilian just just as a just a fan there was just we played so many cool places but knowing what i knew about the history of the units that i served in so i was in the 82nd airborne when i was in the us and then i was in the first infantry division band when i was in over in germany so i knew the history of those units and i knew these places where they liberated after world war ii and so to go there and to see those places for real and to to play um the national anthem at uh point to hawk where the rangers scaled the cliff and took out um this this gun this huge gun that looked down the beaches as a preparation for the invasion of normandy to be there and to play the national anthem and to play taps and to have the last few survivors of that group that did that um that was incredible you know we would go we would play at obviously world war ii cemeteries which is 
seems logical enough, but also World War I cemeteries. There are World War I cemeteries, U.S. World War I cemeteries in France that are, they look like they made them yesterday. They're amazing and they're so well preserved. And so we did a lot of that stuff. We, um, there's this one place in Belgium near where the Battle of the Bulge happened. This guy had this farm when he was a kid the uh the americans were pushing through that area and he uh the 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 europeans at that time had this image of the america as the uh the from the western movies that they saw right mm -hmm. so like the cowboys right. and indian movies that they would see so and we kind of acted like that we our guys were kind of um rough around the edges but they were also they would joke around with the kids they give him chocolate and stuff when this guy inherited that farm he turned it into a museum he calls it the remember museum and when when the u.s pulled out we left a lot of stuff behind a lot of vehicles and that sort of thing and um this a lot of folks gather that stuff up and they still use it in their parades for people to remember mm. what what the u.s did um and this guy turned his, the, the barn, one of the big barns on his farm, he turned it into a museum. It's got vehicles and history and um, shows, you know, photographs and, and uh, a list of people that served through that area. And it's just, it's amazing um, to see what, you know, what was accomplished, I think, and how people are so thankful for that. So, as a musician and just as a, as a, you know, a person in the military, just to kind of, that was unique for me because I think a lot of folks that serve over there, you know, be like people that work on tanks and stuff like that, they're out in the field a lot and they don't get to see that kind of stuff. Um, mm. And I think for me, uh, I was, I was lucky because I was around a lot of that, the history, you know, we would, we went through a lot of these towns that were liberated by, by the U.S. in, in World War II, and and um, people were very thankful. It was incredible, even to this day. Um, yeah. So you you have all these great experiences, and then you you just sliding into you know where you are currently now and everything too. What was the draw of teaching others uh, to to do it full time, and also because I don't know I know the answer to this. How long have you actually been doing it? So I was, um, I got out of the army. I came out of active duty and went into the National Guard in 2001. And I had decided that, you know, I want to uh, push myself to do the, to, to be a musician, a professional musician. Um, so I was going back to college, you know, taking advantage of the GI Bill and all that stuff. Um, and I was doing a lot of stuff. I did some business court, like I got a degree in a business and I spent some time doing studying uh, live sound and, and audio recording. And then I went back and got my um, a degree in jazz guitar performance. And, you know, there was always, there was always a draw for that. I think I I've always enjoyed teaching, but I think also there was a, there's a demand for it. And any, anybody in my situation would, would know that you, this gig economy, you can't just do like one thing. You have to do a lot of things. I was, so I was in the national guard. I was teaching a couple different places. I was doing, I was playing a lot of live gigs. I was also working as a recording engineer and stuff. So you kind of have your, you know, a lot of different gigs going right. all at once. Um, and then over time, I just, I started to build up the teaching. Uh, I, I found that I, I was drawn to it. I felt like, I had learned a lot of um, approaches to guitar. I felt like I, you know, conquered a lot of um, barriers or, or figured out ways around them, and I wanted to share that with folks. You know, I, I, I think a lot of folks that are in that kind of move into that teaching world, what for whatever they do, I think they're drawn to folks that are like them when they were younger. Um, I've seen that a lot in, uh, in my experience as a student when teachers want to help the folks that are that kind of remind them of who they were when they were younger and i, I kind of feel the same I, I want to help folks you know um 
I know what they're up against. And um, <laughs> I, I like to say, like, I, I, I know your fear better than you do. <laughs> I know what's really out there and, and uh, I want to help you figure it out. You know, that's, I, and I think it comes, comes from, you know, other folks um, helping me. Like there, there's been a number of times where, you know, somebody stopped and helped me and they didn't have to. Right. Uh, right. And I, I, almost like a, like a, like an older friend or an older, like an uncle or something like that, you know, somebody just kind of looking out for the next generation. I've always kind of felt that way, I guess. So, yeah. And I, I remember what you said, the first, uh, first lesson you gave me, you were like, so you want to go to the dark side, huh? And it's like, <laughs> you knew, you know what I was up, up against here, what I was getting into, but it's always, uh, you know, it, it's been fun for sure. So that, so that brings me to the, the main, the, a, a big question. And, and I ask this one often of, uh, those I talked to on the podcast here, and, and it's a simple one. It's just relative to your particular discipline, but it matters just the same. Why is improvement such a struggle for people? I think it's, I think it's um, potentially multifaceted. I think uh, as we get older, um, folks tend to get good at something. They, you know, through the process of life, they get pretty good at something. And I think it, it's humbling and hard for folks to be a novice as they get older at something. And I think we kind of, um, maybe it's the way the system is designed, but I feel like people get, it's like they almost forget how they learn and they, they get in their own way. If you look at a little kid learning how to walk, um, I've, it seems to me like they're not self-conscious about it. They just like have, they have this primal drive to do it. Right. And somewhere along the way, we kind of let go of that. And, you know, we have um, that self-doubt in our head and, and that can sort of take over. And I think that's another reason why people don't like to be, most folks don't like to be um, a beginner at something. Mm -hmm. Um but I think it's important to, uh, you know, learn how you learn. That's that to me, when I was working on my degree um, at Towson, that was, when I look at my degree on the wall, that's what I feel like I learned. I learned how I learn and how I have to work on things. And it was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of, you know, you'd be presented with something and you have to figure it out. It's not, they didn't spoon feed it to you, uh, which made it harder but it in a way it also kind of made you stronger because you had to like i say you had to figure it out and um i think the common theme that i see with folks that do well it's not about talent although that can certainly help it's about attitude and perseverance the folks that kind of keep a good attitude and are okay with falling down and um they're okay with stumbling they just you know, it's part of the process. It's, it's, you know, it's totally okay to, to have trouble with something. It's, you just gotta, you gotta be stubborn and dig out, you know, dig down deep and try to figure it out. Yeah. We've talked about that before a little bit. Um, and sort of the, um, what I'll call the instant gratification, um, you know, fast food, fast paced view on things that we, this is just the world we live in. And the reality of it, at least, you know, on my side with golf, and I think we've talked about this, uh, and I've certainly found it in my experience with work, working with you with the guitar, is that shortcuts really aren't a thing. It, it, you have to be able to be willing to embrace the, the, the tripping and falling in the long-term approach. I mean, would you not agree? Yeah, totally agree. Anytime I see any kind of advertisements for guitar stuff and they say that they've got shortcuts, I'm like, give me a break. <laughs> there's a lot of those in golf too it's such it's such a scam <laughs> but people want to believe it like yeah you know i mean if you, if you logically think it through like so this guy figured out something that nobody else has figured out i mean come on it's it's about um i will say though there is you know there's certainly um it's a it's a puzzle and there's a lot of different ways to solve the puzzle so there, it's true that there's not just one way to do it, but to think that someone has sort of hacked it, as they like to say, and um, 
they have this end run. They, they, for whatever reason, I, I, I see a lot of advertisements that they try to tell you that you don't even have to think about it. That seems to be a real, a, a real term that they like to imp- like, you'll yeah. just be able to do it. You'll be listening to your guitar, just like everybody else. You'll be just as amazed as, you know, the folks listening to you, which is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they think that you, you're not going to think about it. It seems a little out there, but um, I think a lot of it specific to the guitar or learning music is uh, it really is very language based, especially when you get into improvisation. Um, some people feel that they don't have the tools for it. And I, I say, look, we're, we're improvising right now. We didn't plan this out, right? We are reacting to what the other person says. And um, it's the same tools that you would use when you are playing music. It's just that you're not using your voice. You're doing it through your instrument. You, you, you talked to, uh, also about the, you know, learning how you learn. And as a, as a teacher, you've got to be able to paint pictures in different ways for people and sometimes say the same thing six different ways. Yeah. Um, one thing I, 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 that connected with me when I started with you, because you do something that I do a lot with my students as well, is you like to use analogies for things to help people connect the dots and paint pictures. Is that something that just kind of naturally comes out? I can't say on my own part that I, I necessarily ever try to do that. It's just something that is native to me, maybe that helps me sometimes connect the dots. I go outside of golf and maybe use an analogy and you use that often. Yeah, that I do. I do. I think that probably comes from like my grandfather. Um, he was a big talker. He, he was, uh, I think, I, yeah, I think it probably comes from him. Um, and just the process of learning for me, trying to wrestle with things, like how can I relate to this? Sometimes I'll even <laughs> come up with like a backstory that's totally fictitious. I'm, I'm totally making it up, but almost a backstory to kind of fill in the gaps of like, why is it that we do things this way with, if it's music theory or something like that. And those were the kinds of things when I was learning the stuff in college, it's how I, it was a way for me to relate to the information and try to make it my own in a way, develop a relationship with it so that it's not this foreign thing that I don't know or don't have a connection with. Um, if you can use, what I like about analogies is that it's, it's, a, it's a way in, it's a way to take something that is unfamiliar and relate to it in some way. Like, here's a thing that you, that you understand over here, but it's very, the same thing is actually happening in what we're talking about here with music or whatever the subject is. Um, and I find that that tends to resonate with folks, not always, but um, then I got to come up with another analogy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You can see that you can see the look on their face when it's sort of yeah, like, just, like, they just go blank and you're like, uh, right. all right, next one in your head. You're like, I think moving I, to the next yeah. one. Yeah, I think it just made it. Yeah, I may have made it worse. <laughs> yeah. me, so yeah. let's try to forget that and let me try it again. Yeah, so many times you, you say something and it, it actually that brings up a good question. I, I hadn't planned on asking you either, but it just occurred to me. I, I've had discussions with teachers before um, about how if you when you're first doing it as a newer teacher slash coach, you're you're much more careful or, or not as careful but you're you're a little bit afraid to maybe go back on what you said because right. you're afraid that it's going to make it look like you don't know what you're talking about yeah, but yeah. as you progress and get better at this like i'm perfectly fine i'll even openly say it to a student like no you know what i don't want you to do that anymore i don't like the way it's going we're going to do it a different way like i'm mm-hmm. totally fine in my own skin now pulling it back into my mouth and saying, no, you know what, forget it. We're going to try this differently. Have you found that to be the case with you uh, and, 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 and your discipline as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it happens, it happens a, a lot. I think sometimes um, when you're working on something, you may say, okay, this is going to be my approach. This is how I'm going to do this thing. And then as it develops, you know, maybe you're basing that on what came before that moment, but then maybe what comes after that moment um, will make you reevaluate what you did. So if you have, you know, part one, part two, and part three, if part, you might decide to do something in part two based on what happened in part one, but then you look at part three and you go, wait a minute, the way we're doing it in part two is not going to work. 
might have to change that. Or sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll show somebody how to work on something and they come back the next week. And I realize like, actually, maybe we should do that a little differently, you know, like that. It's sometimes it's just your, your brain has to chew on it a little bit and you find another way. Very often what I will do is I will give folks uh, a couple of possibilities and I'll say, try this out. So try, try to do this this way and then try to do it this way. And both are acceptable. You may find that this one's better or that one's better. And that's okay. I think um, um, having options is important. Depending on what you're doing, sometimes you will find that a particular option will become the best choice. Um, you also don't want to get bogged down in a bunch of options also, right? That analysis paralysis, right? You go to the cereal aisle and there's 300 choices of cereal and you just can't pick one because you, you, know, right. you, you just get overwhelmed with all the options. So... Um, depending on the style of music and, and what the situation is, uh, having a couple of options is, is good. Uh, sometimes when you're doing more technical music, like a classical piece, and your job is to play it exactly the way it's written or as close to it that as you can, it's generally you'll find that there's one, one best way to do it for you and you wanna do it that way every time. And the reason is, you want to recreate that piece. Every time you sit down, your job is to recreate that piece as closely as possible. So if you have in your memory bank, if you have, sometimes you do it one way, sometimes you do it another way, that can be a problem because you might mess that up because you kind of do it, you might sort of partially do it both ways and then you make a mistake. So in that situation, it's generally best to as you're working through the piece, you kind of decide I'm going to do it this way and you stick to it. Hmm. So you bring up the, you're talking about the classical pieces and, and the technical stuff. So it, it kind of brings me into this other question too. And that's about, uh, about practice. And this is a discussion that comes up very often in our, uh, in our, in our industry. And I'm sure in yours too. And we've, we've talked about it personally here, but Talk to me a little bit about getting students to be maybe a little bit more technically proficient, you know, some of the building blocks, if you will, but also being in touch with the, the playing and the improvisation and the art, if you, if you will, of it. We've talked about that a little bit, and, and it's, um, it's a mix probably. Uh, but talk to me a little bit about that and just sort of the balance between those two. Yeah, it's a tough one because, um, you know, we call it playing the guitar, not working the guitar. So you have to, <laughs> um, I, I do try to emphasize that, right? The, there, there is a point to all of this. And even at the very beginner stages all the way through to, you know, uh, folks that are really doing more advanced stuff, um, I think it's important to keep in mind that there is this sort of technical hurdle this technical uh, work that you have to get done, you have to do it. Uh, and, but I remind them that the other side of this is freedom. On the other side of this, you're going to be able to do cool stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it actually reminds me of probably the biggest piece of advice I ever got, and it was from my dad. Um, when I was a kid, I didn't have my own guitar yet. I was, uh, I had my dad's, it's actually hanging on the wall behind me. Listeners can't mm -hmm. hear it, but the, this old Martin that you'd have to take a running start to play a G chord on. It was really hard to play. <laughs> and I was working on these chords, the big open cowboy chords that most folks start with. And I could play the chords, but I couldn't switch them. I couldn't switch them. And it was, it was so hard for me. I couldn't get my fingers to move to that next chord fast enough. And I, I, I asked him to play it. I said, hey, could you play this? And he just kind of played it like it was nothing. And I said, I'll never be able to do that. And he said, hey, if this was easy, then anybody could do it and it wouldn't be special. And that just, mm. that was, for whatever reason, that's what I needed to hear. Like I, was, I was like, you know, he's right. And, um, 
and I've never stopped. So that idea of like, you know, in the army, they used to say, embrace the suck. Like this is going to suck, but you got to do it. Yeah. Um, that attitude of like, uh, when I was over in Germany, I used to, I would go run after work and, uh, this old crusty, uh, Sergeant first class said, Hey, can I start, can I go run with you? And I said, sure. So he started running with me and every single time we would go run, he would say, I don't have to like it. I just have to do it every single time. <laughs> and I think that, you know, that the front end of it is like, Hey, this is a, it's that sort of delayed gratification. Our goal here is to get this task, this this technical bit squared away so that we can have fun with it. But along the way though, it is, you know, you can present it and have fun. You can break it down into small pieces and that's really important. Breaking it down into small manageable pieces and working on those pieces and then building it back up. I think that's the most important thing that a teacher can do because it absolutely is overwhelming. If you watch somebody just strumming through chords on a guitar and you've never done that. You see both hands kind of doing these two independent things that are somehow linked and synchronized. It, it would seem impossible, but there's ways to break that down. And I think that when, instead of having some huge hurdle, having a smaller hurdle and, you know, when you start accomplishing things, when you start getting that sense of like, Hey, I can kind of do that thing. That is an important motivator. That's, I want my students to have early victories, even if they're small, because mm. you get that sense of like, I can do this. I can do this. Um, and I think it helps to put that, that voice in your head that says, you know, Oh, you're not meant to do this. You're starting too late. You know, you're, um, I think that's important. And I'll tell you, I, I fed people, I, I, I tell this folks, this story, um, be everybody, not everybody, but a lot of folks will, they'll, they'll have a, you know, that grass is always greener on the other side mentality where they'll see somebody with really long fingers and they'll say, oh, my fingers are too short or they'll have really long fingers and they say, my fingers are too long. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I taught a guy that had one hand mm. and that guy never said, I can't do that. I only have one hand. He, so he, it just wasn't in, it, like, it was not even an option to quit. And so I tell folks like, you know, I know right now you feel like you, um, you are uh, up against a big hurdle and you can't do this, but I want you to know that I taught a guy with one hand once. And also I want you to know that there's at least one other person in this world in your, in similar circumstance to you that figured it out. Yeah. And what I've seen throughout the army, all the challenging stuff in the army, teaching just in life. If you can kind of keep your sense of humor and be okay with falling down, you'll be mm. fine. That's great stuff. So uh, the, the guy with one hand, I have to ask, like, did he, how did that work? Did he have a, a prosthetic or did, uh, how did that work? How were you teaching him to play guitar? No, he and was... had you ever had any experience doing that kind of thing before? No, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> no. Right? no. So he, um, so he was born that he was born with, he was, he played lefty. So I guess his right hand was there, but his left hand, um, he was born, like he had a wrist and he had part of a palm. So he had full, a full functioning wrist. Um, and he had figured out, um, he took some, Velcro, like a strip of Velcro. And he took a guitar pick and he melted it. So it was at a right angle mm. and he cut a little slit wow. in the Velcro and he slipped the pick underneath the Velcro and it stuck out and he was off to the races and he wasn't trying, he, he wasn't like, Oh, I just want to sing and play guitar by the campfire. He was like, I'm really into like Southern rock. I want to play, you know, I want to play Leonard Skinner and I want to play all the lead parts. And he was, he was serious about it. It's amazing what people will do if they really want to do it, right? Like, and that's yeah, 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 that's incredible. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What do you um? What do you find uh, the best teachers have in common? And maybe you know, 
not that we're calling anybody out here, but maybe just what you see as maybe some of the things that, and other instructors or teachers that are maybe not the best when it comes to helping people learn. It's a real common denominator. I, it's, I think especially at the college level, a lot of folks in that world tend to get the gig, the teaching gig, because they're really good players. Um, and there is a whole, you know, I'm sure this is true in any discipline, but there are folks that are able to understand when they're learning things, they're able to understand it in big chunks. And so because they absorbed it in big chunks, it's like they, it's like almost like they're just really good at doing puzzles or decoding something or figuring things out because they were, they were just naturally sort of gifted at understanding things in large chunks. They didn't have to break it down for themselves. And so they don't know how to break it down for others. Hmm. So especially at the sort of the college level, you'll see a lot of folks like that. And the, I'll give you an example of that. Eddie Van Halen, his son played guitar and his son would ask him as he was learning how to play, he would say, can you show me how to do this? Something that Eddie played like off of a record and he couldn't, he just, he could play it, of course, but he couldn't break it down and show it to him. He could just do it. Hmm. And he, you know, his son found that to be really frustrating because he's, his dad couldn't break it down. And, and so there are folks like that in, in, especially in the college, um, world, I think that are not, uh, they're not good at that. And then the folks, um, there was, when I was at Towson, the, the piano teacher that was there, um, I was actually really kind of intimidated by him because I didn't really have any classes with him or anything at first. And the guy was so good. I mean, he, 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 uh, he's, you know, played with all these famous people and um, he plays organ in a, like one of the big cathedrals in Baltimore and he teaches at Peabody. And I actually um, took a, a, an ensemble with him. So he was teaching this, this band that I, it was like a little ja a jazz quartet. It was like a, just a few of us in there. And the lady who was playing piano was not actually a full-time student. She would just come up to do these classes. She was a piano player, but she wasn't used to playing jazz. And so, um, he was, you know, he would work with her on the side. So he would, we'd work a little bit and then he would say, all right, let's take, you know, let's take 10 minutes. And he would take the time to show her something. And I, I was just, I wouldn't leave the room because the way he broke things down to teach her, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. It was amazing how he would say, look, don't worry about all this stuff, right? Just focus in on this. So I think the folks that have a way of breaking things down so that you can focus your attention on just a few things and then let the other stuff kind of let the chips fall. That is brilliant. And that is hard to do. It's like the impression that I got with him was that he had that ability. He had the ability to just look at a complex problem and go, don't worry about this. Just focus on that. And it was amazing. It's so funny that you, uh, so that's a great answer. And I think it's, it's really interesting that, you brought it up that way because I have it in my notes here to ask you this question. You kind of already answered it in a way, but because we have this discussion in, in golf circles too, it's like, well, as a teacher, you know, the best players aren't always the best teachers. Mm -hmm. Feel versus real is very different. And a lot of times they don't know. And you watch videos of high level players, maybe they're doing something for a sponsor or whatever, not necessarily teaching. And they're trying to explain in this video for YouTube or whatever. And a lot of times what they're explaining is not what they actually do. And so it's really interesting that you bring that up because there's a lot of great players who are great teachers, but you know, there's also a lot of great players who could not teach their way out of a paper bag or break it down yeah. and help a beginner get in a ball airborne. So that's an interesting point uh, that you yeah, make. I, to follow up on that, I'll give you a prime example. I, one of my students was working on this very complex solo and we found a video of the guy who played it. He was teaching it for uh, like a guitar magazine and he played it slowly, kind of talked through it a little bit, and then he played it at speed. And through the technology that we have now, of course, I was able to grab the video and actually slow it down. And I realized that the way he taught it slow 
that the slower speed walking through it was not what he played when he played it fast. So he was teaching everybody, which would be terribly frustrating if for the poor folks that tried to do it, you know, but he said to do it this way. And he actually, he didn't even do it that way. If you looked at when he, when he played it at speed and then slowed that down, what he was doing with his hands was actually different than what he taught <laughs> right before that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talking about making it harder for the people than it already is, right? Totally. That's, just, that's, that's nuts. <laughs> Um, so when you see a successful musician and certainly you're, a, you're a successful musician yourself, what, what are some traits of the most successful, uh, musicians that you've, you've come across musicians or, or, or teachers, but musicians in general, what, what are some of the best, most successful musicians doing? You know, it's interesting in the music world, I think it really does come back to all the basics of how you handle yourself and how you do business, right? Like your, your word is your bond and all that sort of thing. It's very important. Um, I think musicians are some of the hardest working people I've ever met in my life because they have this huge task that they have to, to accomplish, like becoming good or at least more than good at, uh, at their instrument. But then they also have to get out there. They have to hustle. They have to get out there and get gigs um, whether it's, you know, teaching or, or playing or whatever. So you, you have to, um, I tell folks that want to do this for a living, like I've had folks go on and study this in college, like you have to create your own demand. The, the world doesn't need another guitar player. You have to show them that they need you. Mm. And so that means you have to, um, you have to work hard at your craft. You have to get out there. You have to be reliable. If you tell someone you're going to be there, you be there on time. You, it's very easy to, to lose a reputation. It takes, it takes a lot of work to build up a reputation. It's not just that you can play, but you actually have to be there. You have to be there and you have to be present. You have to be reliable because other people are counting on you. And you could, I've seen people work hard and be great musicians and absolutely blow their reputation uh, very quickly. Um, and I think especially for folks that, as they're younger, they're kind of going from that sort of used to being at home and having mom and dad taking care of things to now they're out on their own. They have to be that those folks that go, some of those folks have a real hard time making that transition. I'd see a lot, a lot in the National Guard because, you know, when you're in the military, it's one thing. But when you're in the National Guard, it's you're kind of halfway between you're in the military, but you're also in the civilian world. And so getting folks to understand that, you know, hey, you got to be you got to be you got to be you got to understand how things work and, mm. and you need to be dependable. Um, I think that's probably, you know, that's that's one of the biggest things um, I remember. Yeah, that's I've seen people do great things, work hard and build up their reputation. And, and it's it's awesome to see. And then I've seen people that, man, what a shame. That guy's such a good player. But it's like he it's like he uh, he he's uh, he's hurting himself so much. And I see it with people in the industry like guitar, um, guitar repair people or photographers, you know, people that are not. um they don't respond to emails or all the basic stuff. Like, you know, you, you, they build a reputation for, even if they're really good at what they do, the primary thing, if they're not good at handling business, getting things done and being dependable, people go somewhere else. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And that's great advice. It, it definitely takes time to build it, but man, you could, you could burn the house down in a, in a second. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. Just it, couple more things here as we sort of bring it home, Tempe. But first off, who are some of the biggest influences for you? I think I know one maybe, but some of the big, biggest influences for you musically, uh, heroes, mentors, what have you, style of music, whatever. Well, Eddie Van Halen, of course, right? Eddie Van Halen, I think, had a huge influence on my generation in many different ways, not just his music, but I think his approach. He... Um, he was okay with tinkering with his guitars. He kind of famously did that. He built his own guitars. He would, uh, he was constantly changing his stuff. And um, 
he 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 struck me as the kind of guy who was a work hard, play hard, just you know, be in it with both feet and be passionate about what you do. I think that was very a very common theme among you know a lot of the music that was happening back then. Um, I think you know I I like so many different styles of music, and I did before I went into the military, but as a guitar player in the military, um, I had to play all different styles because I would be in a pool of about 40 to 50 musicians and I was the only guitar player. So out of that group, they would make up the concert band and the jazz band and the funk band and a, you know all these different ensembles. And if there was a guitar in it, I was in it. So if there's a country band or a Dixieland mm -hmm. band, I had to figure it out. And I really... I really genuinely liked that. Uh, I thought that was really kind of, uh, an interesting, an interesting approach. But um, I think, like outside of that, I would say uh, my grandfather had a big influence on me. Just his general outlook on life, I think, was pretty powerful. Um, he had all these crazy stories of being in World War II, and he uh, he actually he volunteered. He didn't. He wouldn't actually have been drafted because he was working in a a factory that manufactured airplane engines when hmm. uh, at the beginning of uh, World War II. And when Pearl Harbor happened, he actually volunteered and he went over and fought in the Pacific campaign. And his stories were incredible. When I was older and actually in the army, I asked him when you're a kid, you, it's almost like, it's like his stories you kind of hear and you know how it ended. The good guys won and he came home. Right. right. But then when you get older, you realize, wow, they, they didn't know how that was going to end. And I asked him one time, I said, um, I said, man, what, what kept you going? Like, what were you, what, he was gone for four years. Like he didn't come home. Mm. No one knew how that was going to end, whether he was going to make it or not. He was fighting. He wasn't like working an office job. He was like fighting on the front lines and very, very difficult battles and stuff. And he said, he said, I wanted to have, I wanted to have stories for my grandkids. I was like, wow, man. I, and I think that like big picture, that, that approach of like, you know, you gotta, you gotta understand that you, you gotta, you only have this life for, for a short period of time and you want to make the best of it. And I think the folks that I've seen, like my grandfather, people I was in the military with musicians that have been around me, um, that have that sort of zest for life and that push themselves. There's probably, I feel like I'm probably more motivated by music, just people that I know than I am necessarily, um, you know, uh, musicians that I, that I listen to. Um, but as far as like what I listen to and that sort of thing, I'm, I'm like all over the place. I, there's a lot of country players that I enjoy, uh, funk, jazz, R and B. Mm -hmm. Um, at a younger age, I would say though, it was like Hendrix, uh, I listened to a lot of Rush, uh, Van Halen, of course. But at the same time, I had people in my family that listened to old country music and Patsy Cline and Tony Bennett and stuff like that. So oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. I, any, I, in my opinion, like any music that's passionate, I guess, I can dig it. Yeah. So, Tebby, just a couple other things here. Uh, um, first off, just... Uh, a quick question also about the, the business side a little bit. So we, we both sort of, as, as most people have done, <laughs> worked a business through 2020 and the mess that that was. Um, what was the move for you going to the really fully online like you do? And you've got an amazing online setup. Uh, that's, that's awesome. But was that difficult moving away from the sort of person to person, face to face touch in person, if you will, uh, was it difficult? Did it seem odd? Um, I was working. It's so interesting. I feel like so many times in my life, I was, I would get stated on something working towards a goal that I didn't know suddenly I was going to need. Right. So before that happened, like a number of years before uh, the pandemic happened, I was really pushing to try to figure out how to do online lessons. Mm -hmm. And I was doing it a little bit. Um, I had some like local students that moved away and wanted to continue with the lessons. And so I was, I was working on that and I was actively trying to build a multi-camera system that I could do online lessons with, I could do, you know, YouTube videos and that sort of thing. And um, so 
I was already kind of in that headspace. And then when COVID happened and we had to switch over, I was like, okay, here we go. And it turned out that some of the gear that I really kind of needed had just come out, just come out onto the market. And it was just kind of this perfect storm of like getting all this stuff lined up. So I was already moving in that, like understanding the video side of things. I had worked a lot in the audio world already. So I'm trying to get this stuff together. I think the hardest thing was, you know, the, there's the tech side of like, how do you get the cameras to work and all that stuff. But really one of the hardest things is lighting and get it to look professional. I'm still tinkering with it, but mm -hmm. um, teaching online, I found that if folks can have a, a setup on their end where they're um, maybe a little more immersive, like if they can be in a place where there's not a lot of distraction, um, maybe on a larger screen so they can see my hands better and hear what, what's going on. They, they tend to have a better uh, experience, I would say. If they're on an iPad or an iPhone, I think it's, it's harder for them. But um, it's interesting as we've, you know, shifted back. I, well, let me, let me say one other thing with that. One of the technical issues with this stuff in music is actually there's a delay. So there's a slight audio delay. So there's no way for me to play along with a student. Mm. So I've had to find creative ways to do that. I will usually have the student play music from their side and I can hear if it's synchronized. Um, I would say that probably the biggest thing is that the immediacy of having someone sitting there um, and being able to, I can see easily what they're doing. I can change my angle a little bit to see their hand or whatever. Um, and we can play together, you know, that those are the, probably the biggest things, but having said mm -hmm. that I've worked really hard at making, and I'm still, you know, trying to make this an even better experience for the folks. But now that I've kind of switched back to, um, doing the, uh, the hybrid approach of some folks come over and some folks stay a lot of my regular folks have actually stayed online, um, yeah. which I, I find interesting. Uh, and I think a lot of it is, you know, um, it's it's a time saver. They don't have to get in the car and drive over and da 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 da. da. Um, so, um, like I've 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 had folks. Um, I've had students in Germany and Italy and Spain, um, and a student that lived here and then moved away in Massachusetts uh, actually contacted me and we started doing lessons again online. And uh, she's in Massachusetts, so it's it's amazing. Right. <laughs> it's really right. amazing. But the fact that we have, we basically have television studios in our house. Yeah. It's not right. um, the outreach. Yeah. And there's no, there's no tech support. You got to have to kind of figure as we know, before we started this, you kind of <laughs> yeah, have yeah. to figure it out. <laughs> so, uh, last bit here. Uh, how many guitars in the collection at home for you? <laughs> the honest so, answer is I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that that definitely means you have a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you yeah, don't know. Yeah. Although that's if you ask me how many golf clubs I have in the house, I wouldn't know see, either. There so you go. that's fair. Right. There's so a that's fair. right. There's a fine line between collecting and hoarding. I will say that. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Um. Yeah. I don't. It's. I don't have like stacks of newspapers everywhere. But, um. Yeah. I'm at this point now where like, people in my family would just start giving me guitars, <laughs> which is like is kind of crazy. Like, uh. Yeah. It's um. I honestly, I'm not sure at this point how many I have. It's probably, it's probably somewhere in the range of 50, I would guess. Um, Holy man. Okay. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, it, 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 it's, uh, I just, I feel like, you know, there are just certain guitars where I would, um, I wouldn't get a whole lot of money for them anyways. It's not, and I don't have a lot of expensive, crazy, you know, uh, super expensive guitars, whatever, but they, have like a, I guess a certain meaning for me or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in, in fairness, as, as you've taught me, uh, gear acquisition, gear acquisition syndrome, gas, as you call it, is a thing. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, when I do my lesson on Monday with you, I'll have a new guitar, by the way. Uh, oh, so, baby. So early see, Christmas. See or where early, that was yeah, going. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Tempe, uh, before we're done, just kind of let people know where they can they can find you if they they want to take the leap and they want to 
pick up a guitar and learn, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm, my website is tempewarmack.com. It's first last name, T-E-M-P-E-E-W-A-R-M-A-C-K.com. Um, I'm on Facebook and um, YouTube, and you can Google my name and it'll come up. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, look, I really appreciate it. I appreciate all the help on my end with with my journey. We'll keep we'll keep grinding and keep getting after it. Um, and I appreciate you jumping on here, man. Uh, oh, it's a good time and uh, some great stuff here that I think people are going to learn from. And hopefully we'll inspire some people to pick up a guitar and head to the dark side. Yeah, I hope so. I think it's uh, I think it's important for folks to, you know, push themselves. And, uh, you know, um, I, I think it's also important for folks to understand that they don't under they 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 may underestimate how much other folks around them are influenced by their actions when mm. when especially if you're a, an older person and you start you decide that you're going to go after that hobby that you've always wanted to do whether it's guitar or painting or or golf or whatever the people around you see that and can be inspired by that and um yeah I think that's uh, I think that's important to to remember. Awesome, Tempe. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much to Tempe for joining me. It was great to let you all in on some of the many conversations we have uh, during my lessons on teaching and learning. He's been a fantastic guide for me on this journey of taking up the guitar. And like so many great teachers, he's helped me discover and learn things I never would have learned on my own. There's so much you can pick up from someone like Tempe, but I think the main piece of advice is that you are playing and not working. And the freedom on the other side is so worth the time invested on this side. Thanks again to Tempe Warmack. Thank you for listening to the Driving Improvement Podcast. And until next time, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and I'll see you on the lesson team.